Looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dawaskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dawaskin. Thank you, Billy, for such an amazing introduction. Really got me going. Welcome to episode 17 of the Jeff Duoskin Show. I am Jeff Duoskin, and we have an amazing show for you today. Oh my God, I have Bruce Valanche in the house. That's right, Bruce Valanche is here. We have an amazing conversation coming up shortly. Who's Bruce Valanche? Of course you know who Bruce Valanche is. Six-time Emmy Award winner, four years on Hollywood Squares, head writer for almost every award show during the 90s and 2000s, every Academy Awards, Emmys, etc. He wrote the Star Wars Holiday Special. He was a head writer on Donnie Marie. He brought us the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. He is amazing. And we got a great chat coming up just around the corner. But first, a social media tip of the week. This is where I like to share a little social media knowledge with you. I spend way too much time on social media, according to my weekly summary report that Apple sends me every Sunday. So I figure I'll make the best of it by sharing a little information with you. Here's a hot tip. On Twitter, do you know there's an advanced search? That's right, advanced for advanced people, but only advanced people. Kidding, anyone can use it. You just got to know where it is. Here's the trick, though. It's only really on desktop in terms of the interface. When you search, there's like these three dots, and you click on it, and it says, guess what? Guess what? Advanced search. And then you can do all these crazy things with it. Hashtags, filter out replies, only do it over certain date ranges, lots of cool stuff like that. You can do it on mobile. Oh, yeah, you can do it on mobile. But you have to know then how to type in all the advanced search code. So you can do it on desktop, copy it, and then do it on mobile as well. So say, oh, I want to find tweets from Jeff Duoskin, but only from October 15th, 1971. Okay, that, that's not going to work, but you know what I mean. So check that out. That is the social media tip of the week. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, the sponsor this week, Cheese. Cheese. Hey, we're awesome at a party. Just put us right next to crackers and let the magic happen. Cheese. Also good if it gets boring at your party, someone can always say, hey, who cut the cheese? And you can say, oh, I cut the cheese. And then everyone will laugh. Ha, 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 ha. Cheese. Perfect for parties. All right. Well, definitely support our sponsor, please. That's how we keep the lights on. Go out, buy some cheese. There's so many cheeses you can choose from. I didn't even... There's... Uh, Brie and American and Gouda and other cheeses. Lots of cheeses. So check one of those out and tell them I sent you. And thanks for supporting our sponsors, as always. And if you're interested in sponsoring the show in the future, contact us at Jeff Dwoskin Show on Twitter. We're always looking for great sponsors, and we're happy to feature you on a future episode. We'll do a live read of your ad, just like I do every week, and it'll be so exciting. All right, let's do it. In preparation for the interview with Bruce Valanche, I reached out to my Twitter friend, Mr. Jafari, and the Sci-Fi Tags crew, and I asked them to come up with some cool questions that I could ask Bruce about the Star Wars holiday special. They did, 
I wanted to thank them before the interview. Some of the questions I asked came from them. Great group. And it's a weekly game on Hashtag Roundup, which is awesome. And they bring it every week. Fun sci-fi stuff. Anyway, so you'll hear some of their questions. And I'm really excited for this conversation with Bruce Falanche. I've been a huge fan of his for years. Comic Relief, the Academy Awards, all the work he's done, and the people that he's worked with. So exciting. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bruce Valanche. Hey, everybody. I am honored to be joined by six-time Emmy winner, Hollywood Square's legend. If you've seen the Tonys, the Emmys, the Academy Awards, and you've chuckled along, it's probably because Bruce Valanche wrote it. Welcome. I am the EGOT of award show writers. You are. <laughs> I've written them all. I've written them all. I've written everything. <laughs> You've covered everything. It's a book I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> as I as I was. Uh... Just looking at everything you've done, the one thing I, I was really curious about, how do you how do you go from being bar mitzvah in New Jersey to becoming Bruce Valanche? Like, how does that, like, what's, <laughs> where does that, like, how do you, yeah, you know, it's like. Uh, Noah was, was the minorest of the minor prophets. Nothing he said came to pass. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, I had, to, I had to do something. Where did it start? It started, I was a child actor, and uh, I grew up in Paddis, New Jersey, and I was a child actor, and, uh. Uh, I was never a child star, or we'd be having this conversation in rehab. <laughs> uh, but my uh, my parents enabled me. They were they realized I was really happy performing and happy being surrounded by show business. So they they facilitated that. And um, at a certain point, I discovered I could write. And they were their their biggest concern was that I would not be able to make a living as a as an actor because I was I was. Uh, <clears throat> Well, I was heavy and I had a deep voice and I was much younger than the roles I was auditioning for. So that's why I wasn't getting them. And I was too, you know, I couldn't play kid roles because I didn't look like I was born 40. I didn't look like a kid. So uh, I started writing and they said, oh, that's great. Uh, go get a journalism degree because newspapers will always be there. <laughs> uh, so I got a journalism and a theater degree at Ohio State and uh, was always continued the acting and doing commercials and stuff and uh, and the writing. And I got a job at the Chicago Tribune and uh, I was covering show business for the Chicago Tribune. I was a feature writer. And one of the first people I met when I got there was Bette Midler, who was on Broadway in Fiddler on the Roof and on her vacation was was doing a nightclub act. And her manager was somebody who I knew from another performer. And he said, would you review her, get, give her some press, and if you like her. And I went and I was knocked out. Uh, she was an opening act at a, at a famous club called Mr. Kelly's. And uh, she was great. And I interviewed her and I did a piece on her. And she said, That's, you're a very funny writer. And I said, well, you're very funny. You should talk more on stage. And she said, you got any lines? And that was the beginning. And it was, it was only 50 years ago. Pardon me, where's get my digitalis? Oh, Maurice, digitalis, please. <laughs> He'll be here in a minute. Uh, and then, so that started. I was in Chicago for five years. I was in Detroit before that as an intern for the Free Press, but many, many, many years ago. And uh, I, after five years in Chicago, I, I was writing for a lot of people. I was writing for people who came through town, who met me, who knew I wrote for Bet. And so I had a lot of television credits. And so I... Bet's dresser had a brother who started the Manhattan Transfer, Tim Hauser, and uh, we put their act together and they got a television series, a very short-lived summer replacement series for Cher, for whom I also was, was working. 
And uh, I came out here to do that. And that was 1975. And uh, and I've stayed. I've stayed ever since. And, you know, I was writing a lot of that kind of stuff. And uh, cable TV came in and kind of killed variety television. When I came out here, there was the Carol Burnett Show and Dean Martin and Sonny and Cher and Tony Orlando and Dawn and all these things. And they all went away because of cable. And they were replaced by specials and big award shows. So I became a specialist in writing that kind of stuff. And after 20 years of that, they asked me to write Hollywood Squares. And they put me in a square. And suddenly I was famous. And uh, and so forth and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm running on. But you asked how it happened. So No, I did. I did. So I'm, cu- I'm curious in terms of... Um when you I'm met Matt, too, you know, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you mean that in the other sense of the word? Yeah, so, right, yeah. <laughs> we can go both. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, the <laughs> what is the uh, the process of gaining someone's trust to the point where they trust you so implicitly to just allow your words to come through them? That's a great question. Uh, it's trial and error. You. Uh, the key, other than having a comedic bent, obviously, the key to writing for anybody really is to pay attention to them. And you, you have to uh, exercise due diligence. You have to watch, the, watch them a lot. Now it's easier because everybody is on video and whatnot. But back then you had to actually go hear them and listen and hope that you capture their style when you're writing it. And if you do, of course, that's when they trust you. It's uh, at the beginning, they all write for themselves. Because nobody gives a shit. They, are, they don't care if they're, you know, who they are. And then they become stars. And once they, once they become stars, they have to spend a lot of time being a star. The star making, they have, they're doing interviews and they're doing benefits and they're, uh, they're posing for layouts and architectural digest. And then they're doing all the other stuff that comes with being a star. And that was the, that was the time that they used to use to write. So that's when they take on collaborators because they need somebody to keep uh, fueling the engine. Uh, and if, if, as I say, you've captured their 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 ear, if you captured their style, then uh, then they have your trust. It's kind. I compare it to Bob Mackey designing a dress, and he's designed them for everybody. And I mean, uh, you know, you're not going to put a, a fat girl in a mermaid cut. And, you, know, you have to know what fits people, literally. And it's it's a lot like that. It's the same kind of uh, it's comedy couture. <laughs> it's got that, and that's got two K's in it. The K, you know, we all know K's are funny. Right. The, the funniest <laughs> chick, the, the funniest city in the world is Pickle Chicken, New Jersey. You know, <laughs> these are things that are inviolate, or any other shade you like. Is there has there ever been a uh, someone who? decided to part ways with you and somebody else took it oh, over sure. and there was like a weird, like what happened to that person? <laughs> yeah. Um, there have been, I mean, uh, I'm sure there are more than I know, but I mean, there was, uh, there were some people who no matter what you, you gave them, it wasn't going to work like Engelbert Humperdinck, which doesn't really matter. I mean, a lot of them are singers and, um, they found somebody they were more comfortable with, you know? So yeah, Michael Bublé, I started out with, and he's a great guy. He's terrific. But he's, uh, he seems to have found somebody who else who is uh, more comfortable or is maybe Canadian. I don't know. <laughs> but I love him. He's a sweet guy. He's a lovely man. He's been through a lot. He has a, uh, he has a, a, a kid who was sick and he was sick. And, you know, so I'm not, I'm not here to knock him. I think he's terrific. He is terrific. My wife gave me a, a Michael Blue Play CD once for Father's Day. 
<laughs> so well, yeah, he, we're, you know, he, I'm a big fan. Kind of, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. He stepped so. into that 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 romantic but approachable Andy Williams kind of slot that was vacant. <laughs> you know, because Harry Connick is uh, is hipper and projects a more uh, a more I don't know Broadway jazz image and uh, which is not as uh, you know warm and inviting. You know, you have to have that. Barry Manilow has that, which is why, you know, he has hundreds of thousands of women who are huge fans of his. Even though they know he's married to a man, they're still huge fans. That doesn't that doesn't deter. I love Barry Manilow. <laughs> you you worked with Barry Manilow early on, right? Well, well you know, yeah, well, he was the best piano player. Right. He were, yeah, right. And then when we started, he was uh, he was her first and became the music director, and then. He got his own deal. He was always shopping for a deal for himself, and he got a record label deal. And so eventually, uh, he finally he had to leave, and he left, and and uh, he had Mandy, and suddenly he became a gigantic star. Yeah, growing up, we had we listened to Barry Manilow and Neil Diamond and yeah. Barbra Streisand, all the the big Jews, Jews my people, <laughs> <laughs> all of them. As if Barry Manilow was my... they were they all out of Brooklyn, right? Know? Right, exactly. Yeah, it was like they're uh, all out of Jersey. Barry Manilow was the, uh, my first concert I ever went to with my parents. Uh-huh. My first concert without my parents was the Monkees. But like the uh-huh. my first parents with my with my parents was Barry Manilow. It was the first concert I ever saw. At Pine Knob. I Pine mentioned Knob. you were in Detroit. That was, so that's where that's where Bet flashed. Pine, Pine Knobs at Pine Knob. We call yeah. That. So, <laughs> that's. Uh, but yeah, I've been there. Uh, that's Troy. We were up there. At, played up there with a lot of people and I, and maybe I toured with Barry early the first wave and I'm not sure if it was there yet uh, fine now the first wave of those big outdoor places and then he had he wanted somebody who would be like full time for him and so he had other people but uh, it, you know at the beginning I put his first show together because it was the it was the whole Midler crew that when she was not when she stopped working for a minute went over to him she finished a tour and there wasn't going out, so he was awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So how much how how much do you work with Bette Midler these days? Do you work with her like does she come? Uh, do you I, go on the I politician and punch up the script? Well, yeah, I Midlerize it. Yeah. And uh-huh. uh, and you know she toured. I guess like three years ago was the last tour. I don't know that she's ever going to do it again. She went into Hello Dolly for uh, you know uh, a year and a half and. Um, and and now she's you know working in television, so uh, but that the last time we was, it worked together intensely was, uh, was on the Divine Intervention tour, but uh, there are, she does benefits, she does things. I talk to her all the time. I, I you know she calls me up and we work on stuff together, and the and the movies, and uh, and I'm, I'll have Barry and Bet worked to, did two great albums. They did a Rosemary Clooney tribute album and a Peggy Lee tribute album. And then they had a falling out. You know, they're, they're, they've had periodic fallings out. This is one's lasting longer than most. <laughs> oh, no. well, I hope they get back together. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all arcing into our dotage, you know. Uh, so people people will make amends as they see the end of the tunnel. <laughs> right, right. We hope, right? Yeah. So what was it? What, what tore them apart? <laughs> what oh, they, uh, something about the Peggy Lee album. It was, oh, okay. Uh, it was, it was uh, I don't know exactly what, I do know what it was, but I don't want to talk about it. Right, right. But, uh, um, <laughs> that, it, I mean, it was in it, by nature of an artistic dispute, ironically enough. But, uh, you know, back in the day when they were both big, big at the same time, 
uh, I mean, and still growing, that would get the, the greatest reviews and the greatest affirmation from the industry, from fellow artists, and uh, not sell as many records as she would like to have sold. And Barry would sell as many records as anybody could ever sell and would never get a good review. The industry kind of said, oh, you know, they, they kind of joked about him because it was so sentimental. And, you know, we called him Mary Modulate because everything escalated, you know, and he was he's such a great I mean, he gave that trick to bed. He's a great showman and he is a terrific or obviously arranger and all that. But he knew what he was doing. And um, but he never got the the kind of props that she got. And they were envious of each other. She wanted his record sales. He wanted the kind of affirmation she was getting. And then, and then you know what? That kind of they both became so big that it didn't matter anymore. Right. And yeah. That was in, in their own what, right. After that book brought them back after one of the falling outs is, is that they you know I think they realized that there was room. They were both doing what they wanted to do and having a good time and they'd never have to work again. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so you do, you do like, she'll call you in for like the TV show she's doing right now. And that yeah. politician, you'll, well, no, that's a Ryan Murphy show and they, they know what they're doing. I mean, right, and the right. kind of stuff I would give her, they've given her like the A plus material Ian Ian Bannon, who basically wrote all of Jane Lynch's stuff on Glee is writing all of the, the, are you watching the politician or have you seen the politician? I'm into, we just started season two. Yeah. Well, well, the, all the Hadassah uh, stuff and uh, the Judith Light stuff is all, I'm sure, Ian Bannon, who is a terrific writer. And uh, you know, there's no, no improving is needed there. Okay. Well, I, I always think there's room for Bruce Blanche. But think of me anyway. <laughs> think of me as hovering above it. You know, above above it, yeah. it's, all, it's all there. So, all right, cool. I just happened to, a few weeks ago, be watching the... Paul Lynn Halloween special. This was before I knew we were out of talk. season. Well, <laughs> we, we what I have Amazon Fire Stick, and they it does all this thing where it puts stuff on. It just you know just it just oh, suggests yeah. stuff. So I start watching it. I find it fascinating to watch shows from like you know the seventies, and it's like because it's so different. There's just a, there's a, it's whole a different world, a whole yeah. different style. And I look um, at the Carol Burnett show every night because they show Me TV shows a half hour version of it. Sometimes they'll split the show up into two different shows. And it's just a whole different, it is a whole different thing. And I think about how it changed. Saturday Night Live had a lot to do with how things changed because you could do stuff on that show you couldn't do on anything else. And as a result, a lot of the other stuff began disappearing because the audience was more interested in what was happening on uh, late night. Anyway, I interrupted you, but you were talking about the Halloween special, which is a work of rare genius. It is right. It was one of your cult classics, you know. What I mean, yeah, I didn't. Absolutely. And I always, I thought it was while I was watching it. I just thought it was really funny that Kiss has what three or four songs they do on it, and Full Kiss, Full Kiss, and the Full Kiss. Just, the just, first just, time on network television, which tells you what the world was like in those days, because there were, I mean, music acts, and they didn't break through to network television. That was a separate thing, and they were a big. I thought they were a big get when when we got them. But they were kind of eager, but they they didn't want to, like, betray their roots, their rock and roll roots by doing a schmaltzy thing. But this was like the perfect opportunity to come on because it was Paul who was very hip, although he was, you know, on, on, uh, perceived as square. I mean, everybody knew he was hip. And, um, uh, well, I, I 
he, to me, he was like the archetype from Bye Bye Birdie. That was why he was so perfect in that character. He was the central Ohio dad with a <laughs> twist. And, uh, and, but it was him and, and Halloween. It was an unbeatable combination. And so they jumped at it. Yeah, I, I couldn't stop watching it. I did. <laughs> yeah, Margaret Hamilton and uh, I can't remember her name, Witchy Poo and uh, yeah. Betty White was in it. Florence Tim, Henderson, right? I think, was oh, on it. Florence Henderson. That's why I always thought it was funny. Like you had Florence Henderson fist singing and then Kiss would be singing a minute later. Uh, and Pinky Tuscadero. Uh, yeah, was, loved her. Uh, yeah. Fonzie's girlfriend, <laughs> Roz Kelly. Was her, yep, that, yep. That was uh, yeah. that was her thing at the time. Yeah, it was it was quite a it was quite a menagerie. <laughs> we had a great time. We had a great time doing it. It looked like there was a lot of fun going on yeah. there. <laughs> you had I Margaret mean, Hamilton you know, was, in full Wizard was, of Oz. Uh, it was wizard. It was kind of. It, you know, at the time, I mean, I, I'm writing a book now about how I wrote the worst television shows of all time and lived. And at the time. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot. There was uh, there were lots of weird specials, you know, that were that were, you know, you didn't. Cole Porter in Paris with Connie Stevens. What? <laughs> what is that? Uh, there were lots of stra- like strange, strange things, and uh, it was it. And the other, my other great strange show, the Star Wars Holiday Special. I mean, these were things that happened in the seventies, partially because we were also chemically altered. You know, I think it all they were. Oh wow, that's a great idea. But also because that was that was the thing. It was uh, uh, what television was trying to do was to like synthesize all the other all the pop culture that they, they could get into the into the maw into the mix. And of course, they used it. It was all to sell tampons or craft cheese or whatever you know, Black and Decker power tools, whatever the sponsor happened to be. So I doubt they sponsored the Poland Halloween special. <laughs> Uh, it was it was definitely a hoot. The um, did you do a, you did a lot of work with Paul Lynn? Yes, he was still on Hollywood Squares, the NBC version. And then what had happened was he had a, a sitcom, The Paul Lynn Show, which opened with one of the highest ratings in television history, and the second week was about half as big. And it was because basically he was not the center of a sitcom; he was too strange. He it, it had a hard time being it was hard for him to be a real character. I mean, he was great. He was the kind of character that you would push into another story and he would he would be a, an exotic kind of character who would come in there with zingers and, and one liners and stuff. But it was hard to make him the center and the, and the audience didn't respond to him as the center of the show. And you had to put people around him who were kookier than he was, which was hard to find. So. They canceled it and they paid him off uh, with a slot on the Donnie and Marie show, which I was writing. And he was a regular on Donnie and Marie. And of course, we, he was great because that he filled that role perfectly, because especially for them. He was like this sort of sophisticated addition to the mix. I got to know him really well on that. And he would say he would be doing squares at night. He would say to me, come with me to squares. I have to it. And we'd write stuff in the car, and then he had a lot of stuff. He had stuff that they gave him and all that. But and so we got friendly. And when and when part of the network deal was, I think, to give was to give him specials to see how he would play as a special uh, attraction. And he did the, the ratings were always very good. He did very well as specials. So I came on and did some of the specials, including the Halloween one. Who knew? Who knew? As, as I say, if we had known. 40 years ago, that people would still be talking about this stuff and watching it, uh, we would have paid closer attention. And if Paul knew, 
that 40 years after he died, we were still talking about him, he would be astonished because he really never thought of himself in that in that sense. He really his internal turmoil was that he was a flash in the pan and he wasn't getting to, to do what he really could do. Unfortunately, I think he was doing what he really could do. And that was part of what what drove him to so much bad behavior. He definitely stood the test of time. I mean, I always knew him. You know, he was always, you know, just a part of the entertainment culture that that I knew. You know, I mean, so it's he definitely made an impact. In a way, I mean, you throw him in it for one line and people go, oh, my God, that's funny. But, it, yeah, you know, if you try to say, well, let's do the Paul Lindner now. Or if you if you put like a like a clip show together, you would see a lot of the same stuff, not the same actual lines, but the same joke. If, as same a, beats. The same beat repeating over and over again, which is, you know, hey, it worked. <laughs> it worked. If you want to see it. Uh, on a uh, look at American Dad, that alien is Paul Lind. Right, 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 right. Okay. That green slime who lives in the attic—that's Paul Lind. I mean, that that's McFarlane doing the voice, I think, but it's Paul Lind. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned Donnie Marie. Yes. Uh, you, you did. Uh, Marie was my first crush. So thank you. <laughs> oh wow. Well, you know, uh, uh, we we broke her cherry. <laughs> he turned eighteen on the show and. That was an occasion for a big birthday show, and she she was in love with Barry Manilow, and I got him to come on the show as nice. a surprise guest. He came out of a box. She didn't know he was there. Thought she was going to die. Thought she was going to faint the way she did on Dancing with the Stars later on. Oh no! Yes, yeah. He gave her a beagle puppy because he had a beagle named Bagel, which was part of his whole gestalt, and so he gave her one of Beagle's one of Bagel's puppies. I don't know. <laughs> well, this is many years ago. Oh, it was many years ago. I doubt mm-hmm. if anyone would know. Sweeney Do you still keep in touch with Donnie or Marie? Yeah. Um, yeah, Marie's on the talk every day, and she's down here. And I mean, you know, I see her when I see her. I, I mean, I we talk. Not I stay in touch, but I don't like. It's not a thing where every week we call each other. Sure, and sure. Donnie is up in Donnie is back in in the promised land, Utah. Got it. And I mean, you know, they have grandchildren now, and it's you know, I mean, the, the the Osmond grandchildren are doing an act in Branson, Missouri. That's who the Osmonds are now. The grandchildren. Grown up grandchildren. So, uh, yeah, since I mean, they had a I was on their talk show and then, uh, and, you know, they they then were like in Vegas for 10 years. Flamingo, they had a residency. And when they ended that, then they kind of, you know, career wise, they're they've gone. They separated again. So, right. They each did Dancing with the Stars and then they did. Um, and Donnie was just on The Mask, I think. Last oh, he was, the mask, yeah. was he the mask singer? Yeah, he was one of the mask singers. Yeah. <laughs> So you also did uh, the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. Yeah, uh, everything. Uh, my entire another, job. All, all of my hit. Another. I, know, I, I, grew, I grew up on you. I guess something. You know? I guess. Were you sitting yeah. in Detroit in this in the yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, in a little suburban house, just looking, watching all this pablum I was feeding you. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I I come to Hollywood with the transfer, and it was very hip. We didn't get any ratings, but it was really hip. And got great reviews. And uh, I was trying to get jobs on variety shows. And they said, oh, well, he's just too hip. He's just too New York and all that. And um, and Florence Henderson was somebody who I knew. And she said, come write the Brady Bunch. We're going to do this new Brady Bunch thing. And I said, the Brady Bunch? I have to do that to prove myself? She said, do it. They'll never say you're too hip again. <laughs> <laughs> but Florence I knew from Broadway. She was a Broadway 
theater actress and star, but she had four kids and uh, her husband was, was, she married a Jewish guy who worked for the Schuberts, actually. And they opened the theater in LA and they, he came out here to do it and he, and he took charge of that. So she moved out here. I think that was what happened then and uh, with the four kids and got wanted the television gig and this was the gig that she got. And of course it changed her life because she was then marked as Carol Brady forever. Not the worst thing. Not the worst thing. She, she carried that. that pretty well. That and Wesson oil. <laughs> that and what? Wesson oil. <laughs> oh, yeah, Wesson oil. Exactly. Uh, I'll tell you, chicken with Wessonality. <laughs> she, uh, you know, she had never, she'd never cultivated the, the sophisticated side of her personality. She always was the, the bright-eyed ingenue. Even when she did a nightclub act and, or played Vegas, she was never uh, pretending that she was hyper sophisticated. I mean, she was just a straight ahead Broadway soprano. So, th- so it wasn't like she was betraying herself. She'd never really showed that side of herself to anybody publicly. So it was, it was not the hardest fit for her professionally to become Carol Brady. But I, I honestly, I'm sure she did not think, because nobody thought, that it would last as long as it did. Oh, it's lasted forever. I, I have, I've met Barry Williams, Peter, yeah. and Cindy <laughs> at Comic-Con. It's a, well, Chris and I, I love, Barry and Chris are terrific, and Susan is a, a good friend, and she's out of her mind. But, but she, she was Cindy, yeah. They're all, I mean, I like, they're all, they were, they were great kids, and now they're, they're like great human beings, great adults. And I did the renovation show. I did a, a thing with Barry on the renovation show. Oh, that was just very, recently. Yeah, the very Brady renovation where they yeah. bought the house and they redid it to look like the Brady house. I watched a couple of those, yeah. Yeah. That was cool. um, HGTV. Right. Exactly. But, you know, no, I don't think any nobody anticipated we'd be talking about these things 40 years on, but then nobody anticipated the Internet and how that would change the way information is shared. And how skeletons that you thought were long buried suddenly come bursting forth out of the closet. (laughs) Because because it facilitates it. It enables all of that stuff. So that's partially why this happened. But still, the Partridge family, which was the Brady Bunch's twin sister... Was they were uh, they were uh, you may have watched that one too because it was an mm-hmm. hour on Friday nights that everybody that, that everybody who watched those things watched both of them and the Partridge family were actually a real singing act I mean they were they were all singers but it, they never they didn't stick together and they never got promoted I mean promoted when when Fred Silverman wanted to to do this show with the Partridge family. He couldn't get them together, so he went to the Brady Bunch because Florence, of course, was Florence and the Brady. The Brady kids had an act that they that they toured. They played state fairs and things like that. And uh, so it, it wasn't the, the, the most unnatural thing for them to, to slide into a variety show, although they weren't as skilled at it. <laughs> I, used to mm-hmm. that. I used to say it was one captain and seven, one to kneel and seven captains. <laughs> uh, and everything kind of had to be coaxed. So and the, the parts haven't survived like this internet bubble the way the Brady's have because the Brady's were always in reruns it never stops like Lucy the Brady Bunch has been in continual reruns since the show went off the air on ABC and then there have been all the reboots the TV movies and the animated series and our show the variety hour and so forth and so on right down to a very Brady renovation the other big kicker the TV on DVD 
like when when box yeah. sets started being released like that was the resurgence of family guy family guy came back because of the popularity of that which probably we went to probably referenced american dad recently a few minutes ago because that's what that brought him back i remember they canceled family guy fox Mm -hmm. and uh it it had it was one of those things that had such i didn't know it was because of the dvd i guess it was because i was seeing somebody who kept saying oh you got to watch this show you got to watch this show and i watched that i thought and it was i thought yeah it's, it's like you know a simpsons wannabe and uh, uh, that was you know, in the firmament already. And I was on it once. <laughs> and but it was fun. It was funny. And I liked it. And then Fox canceled it. And, and he sent a, he sent me a DVD. He said, you have to look at all of these because they're uh, they're uh, he gave me a DVD. And I so I looked at it and I thought, OK, and I, I began to like it. And then I became a regular viewer. I love that show. I love uh, all his stuff. Seth MacFarlane. I love the Academy Awards growing up. I remember always watching it and I knew you were a writer on it. And so like when I was seeing, you know, being a stand-up comic and I've done comedy, like it was, I thought it was like the coolest thing ever to be able to write stuff like that, that other people would say. It just, to me, it was just like, it was just the coolest thing. So it, it is really, really an honor to meet you right now. And so it's like, it's putting that all t- kind of together. So it's really cool. It's really cool. So yeah, as many as I've seen, it can't be easy writing all that stuff. And I'm curious about like, what, what are some of the things like, I imagine you prep for an Academy Award and then things just happen. And like, yeah. how do you, how do you pivot? Like what's, are you allowed to with the sensors and all that kind of stuff? Like what's, what's the you word? Mean, how, uh, you mean at, in the course of the broadcast? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, it started, well, for me, it started with Billy Crystal when uh, the year that uh, Jack Palance won for, uh, I think it was Billy's second time hosting, uh, and Jack won for City Slickers, which was Billy's movie. And he made up a crack about Billy and then started doing one-arm push-ups. Yes. And so, but nobody remembers the first thing that he said, Billy introduced Whoopi, who was presenting the award, and made, I forget what the joke he was, he made about Jack, and because uh, Jack was nominated in that category, and then Jack won. And he came up on stage, and the first thing he said was, Billy Crystal, I crap bigger than that. <laughs> so right away, we knew we were off and running. Then he started doing the one-arm push-ups, and Whoopi was like standing upstairs, and kind of going, in amazement. <laughs> and we were in the wings, and Billy said, well, we have to, we have to go with this. And so we threw out a lot of what we were doing, what we had planned, and we kept coming up with Jack Palance jokes to do as, as often as we could. So he was a running gag. And this, the, uh, you know, we worked with the network censor who was at the time Mrs. Futterman, who uh, was owl eyeglasses, looked exactly like you expected, but she was kind of a writer's champion. It, she was forced to toe a certain corporate line, but we knew what we couldn't do, basically. And, um, and as, we, as we just kept going, Billy's manager came backstage and said, uh, how many more of these are going to do because I'm running a pool in the audience? <laughs> and I would like to win. <laughs> That's awesome. But it must be, it must be great to like work with, have, have being held, handed gold like that. Like well, Jack we won Nelson. the Emmy for it. The next year we won an Emmy for writing the show, for basically rewriting the show on the fly. There you go. But there everything go. else, except for what the host does, and except for what a, 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 a winner might say, everything on the show is scripted and not merely scripted, but negotiated. I mean, by the time it gets to the censor, it's like the last person to look at it 
I mean, because everybody wants to be seen in the best possible light. And they all have people and their people all have concerns. And so you have to deal with everybody's people. And, and it goes down the line. I mean, you'll, you'll hear from the hairdresser saying, oh, well, she won't she won't say that. You know, I mean, they'll call you up and they'll tell you, listen, I'm helping you out here. Uh, I walk her dogs and I'm telling you, she's not going to do this. I saw the script. She's not going to. So it's you know, over 23 of these shows. I've learned what to do with all of that kind of stuff. And basically the the, uh, the, the censors is, is, you know, they're 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 here and there. I mean, Mrs. Futterman, one year Whoopi was hosting and it was the year that Hugh Grant had been arrested for oh, yes. with a yes. prostitute named Divine Brown. And the joke we had was, what a year. The, of course, the biggest release this year was Hugh Grant. <laughs> <laughs> Which we knew would get a big laugh. And then she, and she was going to say, yeah, that's a Vine Brown. It's a real, that's a fellatio Alger story. <laughs> Mrs. Futterman said, fellatio was on a list of words that we cannot utter on the Academy Awards. Because you could say it on NYPD Blue, but that was on at 10 o'clock at nine o'clock central. And the Oscars were earlier in the evening and they were considered a family event. And there were words that could not be said on a family event. All this has changed, mind you, uh, because in order to keep up with cable, they had to change all those things. And so you, I mean, you would hear, I don't know that you did hear, but you would, you could hear fellatio on Roseanne, <laughs> which is a bizarre image, but I mean, they could use, they could say words certain at eight o'clock that they could never use before because they were hearing them elsewhere. And unless there was, you had a very uptight sponsor who, you know, was like, I don't know, a Mormon company or a, a, a Christian, a faith-based company that, who really would have an objection to it. Basically you could, you could use it. And, and since so much of television now is sponsored by tech and, you know, gigantic multinationals, it doesn't come up the way it used to. Did you ever, I'm sure you did, but did you ever write something, they did it, and you're like, oh, that did not work. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the whole, you know, Ted Danson blackface thing, that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, that was Whoopi's idea, and uh, uh, it was a, a tremendous backfire. But that was because the Friars Club had always been a private party, and that year they made it public. And it was in a ballroom with 1,500 people who had no idea what a roast was. They thought a roast was the Dean Martin thing where Lucille Ball made fun of Orson Welles. They didn't realize, and everybody had kid gloves. They didn't realize what a real Friars Club roast was. And Whoopi and Ted did it for a very specific reason. They had broken up, and uh, this was like their swan song. And they wanted to fight, they wanted to address all the people who had directed hate at them for the two years they were together to show that they were above all of that. So they were the worst jokes imaginable and in the worst possible taste because that was the, that, that was the mission. And I just felt bad because the moment he came out there, he realized that this was the wrong room. And you're standing out there in blackface. It's like, you can't say, excuse me, folks, I'll be right back and go backstage and hit the Albaline. I mean, they're, just, they're waiting for it. And there were a lot of people who were on the dais who decided to take umbrage because I think because they were black and they were afraid that they would be their own community would turn on them. People like uh, Montel Williams and the mayor of New York, David Dinkins. And one who did not was Chris Rock, who was uh, was not Chris Rock yet. He was on SNL, but he hadn't established himself as Chris Rock. He was very good about it. But a lot of people, Roger Ebert, 
who was married to a black woman, Chaz Ebert, he decided to take umbrage on her behalf, I think. And uh, it was a mess. It was horrible. It was awful. It was like watching a plane with all your relatives on it get shot down. It was just it was terrible. So that's the biggest case of it. You know, a joke doesn't work. A joke doesn't work. That's why they have savers. I mean, Johnny Carson used to do a whole, whole evening of savers. If they didn't laugh, he would, you know, have a joke that he knew they would laugh at. And it was generally about the fact that he didn't laugh. You know. But like a Billy Crystal can save himself, right? If so, if Billy Crystal, because he's a comic, he has that natural yeah. sense, right? So yeah. he like when so working with him with the Jack Palin stuff was probably just just gold, right? Hey, do this. Yeah, he can will, internalize it. He can just get out there and do it, right? But then some of these folks, <laughs> they can't do. They they haven't got that skill, right? Yeah. So it's something that you learn or you don't learn. I'm not. I'm trying to think of who it was, but there are people who, for, I, I hate to do it, but you can prepare savers in case something doesn't work. Uh, but you can always say, you know, and uh, it's like it's like telling them what to say to hecklers. You know? Right, right, right. Every, yeah, every right, one right, of those situations to. is different. Uh, some of them have got it and some of them, you know, like Michael Richards just lost it when he was heckled. He just lost it. That happens to people. And he got into a lot of trouble, and he was an early victim of cancel culture. Yes, and pho- and cameras on phones. the uh, The whole combination of all that is well. Uh, that that yeah. increases because the evidence. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, uh, so much now. You just, I mean, just even now with the internet bringing up the stuff that was recorded, everything's yeah. recorded now. It's a whole different. It's a whole right. different world. So, uh, speaking of Billy Crystal, uh, another thing that I grew up with and loved, comic relief. <laughs> yeah, I did. All the comic reliefs. I think yeah. that was like the first time like I felt like uh, I was watching something where you know like oh I could I can give, right? I can help uh, yeah, people. Yeah. You know, That's I was good. like I, I just love yeah. those. Those were also great. Well, that was a gift of Ronald Reagan who cut so many welfare programs that uh, people were suddenly on the street and there was all of a sudden there was a homeless crisis and there was a direct result of the uh, triple down theory of the Reagan administration. And the comics saw it, and they decided they could do something about it. I mean, they were not fans of Reagan to begin with, except maybe the movies he made with the chimpanzee. Those were those were always fun. But they decided to get together and do this. And HBO was looking for a signature piece because they they were HBO, but they wanted to be HBO. So they uh, and in the variety area, they hadn't really done anything. So they they picked this thing up, and of course, it became an event. And it, it just it kept going because the homeless situation did get didn't get any better but by the time we had gotten to like the 12th one it was you know diminishing returns there there a lot less people were contributing because they kept contributing and they kept seeing homeless people and it wasn't kind of like uh, medical charities where you say we're still working we're working on it uh, they want people wanted to have direct results anyway the last one we did was for uh, victims of katrina we did it in right. New Orleans and, uh, and uh, L.A. And then it was then it kind of it went away. And the, the guy who organized it at HBO went away. And the three of the three of them, Billy Robin and Whoopi, said, you know, we could do another one, but we have to have younger people hosting it and we will make an appearance. And that might be the answer. If there you know, if there are people who are more relatable to Generation X or millennials or whatever, I, I lose track on all the nicknames. They could, uh, that might be a way back in, but nobody has stepped up to say, yeah, I want to do this. So, and now probably we will all be streamed and, you know, zoomed. Right, exactly. 
I'm sure you're tired of talking about it, but I am slightly obsessed with the Star Wars holiday special you mentioned earlier. I actually have a copy. I know, well, I actually, I have, I remember seeing it, you know, but it, I think it only aired Did one time. Did you watch it? Yeah, way back. Well, you must I remember have, how, it. How old were you? I mean, without asking how old you are now, I will do the math. Well, I would have been eight because it came out right after, mm-hmm. shortly after Star Wars, right? So, so yeah. It was, uh... Star Wars was seventy seven. I guess it was seventy eight. Yeah. yeah, it was Thanksgiving yeah. weekend of seventy eight. Yeah. So I met, and then uh, years ago, a friend of mine gave me a, a copy on DVD. So I had actually, and now you can watch it. You can stream it all on a bootleg um, DVD. And, there, are, yeah, there was bootleg, no DVD. Yeah. Oh right, you know, he gave me a bootleg of it. Yeah, oh, yeah it was like taped I mean, off, taped off somebody's even, VHS. Even yeah. Even then, when there went well, there, well, there, there weren't DVDs then. Actually, there was you could. You could buy a VHS, but they uh, they cost a lot of money, and so people rented VHS tapes. Yeah, this was a VHS burned onto it. Uh, yeah, you know, someone had yeah transferred it off over. of. Yeah, there were. <laughs> yeah. I had a. Uh, I think I had a a Betamax tape. I think I had a three quarter inch, which was what they actually used in uh, on a television studio. They recorded on three quarter. And, but they were they were like real to real three quarters, whatever it was, whatever I had, somebody else had who burned it to get what you had. <laughs> exactly. And so you can see how the trip it was. What was interesting about that was George made the three movies and then he stopped. He'd always said he was going to make. He had six movies he wanted to make. He told me that he said he had ten stories and six of them were earmarked for movies, and the four others he was selling off to different things. And this was the last one in the pile. And he sold it to CBS for the variety show. And, of course, uh, I don't think he knew anything about variety television. I think that he thought they were just going to take the story and musicalize it. Would have been difficult because the lead, the characters in the story were the Wookiees. They were the Wookiees who talk like fat people having orgasms. <laughs> Trust me, I know. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was difficult, and we had to, uh, in, in, in traditional network uh, variety special form, we had to bring in, we brought in stars, and uh, because the Wookiees were only, would speak in, couldn't speak in subtitles, everyone felt nobody would read subtitles, because all oh, that's changed. Now all the Star Wars movies are loaded with subtitles, because everybody is speaking Ewok or, or Jabba, whatever they speak, <laughs> and uh, every planet's different. So right, of course. He um, so we had our Carney as a Tupperware salesman who was going from planet to planet and who spoke Wookiee and he could translate everything the, the Wookiees at home were saying. Meanwhile, Chewbacca was in the Millennium Falcon with Han Solo, Princess Leia, and Luke on their way to deliver uh, Chewbacca to the Wookiee planet for Life Day, a holiday Jordan invented. And they stopped off at Tatooine at the cantina, uh, which was we had run by B. Arthur, so she could do a number. There were numbers in each of these places. And, and the Wookiees had a virtual reality helmet, which nobody knew about at the time. George said he invented, and they, it would, it would, but it would pin into their brain, and vi- they could visualize their fantasies. They'd realize them. So the kid had a fantasy. The little Wookiee had a fantasy of Cirque du Soleil, and... Uh, Grandpa had a fantasy of Diane Carroll, 
and yeah, somebody yeah. else got a fancy of Jefferson Starship, and, and so forth and so on. So it was it was a very eclectic variety show, and I don't think George ever anticipated that. I don't think he anticipated guest stars. I think he thought they would turn it into a seamless sort of of, of space opera. So he uh, he got out when he could, but he wasn't going to. Uh, stop it but he went back up to Marin because he was about to start shooting the empire and and this was a, a thing to, to to stir the pot between Star Wars between a new hope and the empire anyway all of it was dead and buried and uh, it did it did the ratings were good the reviews were not terrible and uh, but it was like everything else it was dead and buried after the, that weekend and then along came the internet, and the bootlegs of which you speak began showing up on the internet. And an, a whole generation of kids, probably your age, who had watched the first three movies on video, were too young to actually go to the theaters to watch it, saw this special, which had his name on it, which they'd never heard of. And they were appalled, and they felt betrayed. And George be began getting death threats saying, how could you do this? And he got, you know, I mean, he was scared. And so he made it his mission to try and erase this thing from the face of the uh, Internet, which, of course, is impossible to do. It's very hard to find. And everything we do find is like squiggly and awful. But um, he and he flat out won't talk about it. And if you if it's mentioned his presence, the smile becomes a frown. And just because he did go on and make the three other movies. And that was the thing. Every time one of those pictures came out, it was unearthed again as, yes, well, some of you have never seen the Star Wars holidays, but the lost Star Wars thing and all that. The only thing that remained of it was Bubba Fett, who was introduced on the show and then became yep. an animated thing that went on for, still goes on probably. But did you have anything was, to do with the Boba Fett No, that cartoon? was the one. He did that, they did, Lucasfilm did that one and we had nothing to do with it. It was just inserted. I think it was something that the kid was watching on virtual reality. The little Wookiee. Lumpy. Lumpy, Lumpy. the Wookiee. The were, those, were those nicknames or is that a full name? <laughs> like Chewie. No, oh, uh, he named them all. He named them uh, Lumpy. Wookiee, I forget what her name was. I kept calling her Mrs. Chewbacca, but uh, she did have a name and somebody... It was Itchy, wasn't there? It was an Itchy in there. The... Uh... <laughs> Was, was Itchy the grandfather? Could have been. It might like have been. A, a silverback Wookiee. So the whole idea behind the Wookiee concept was all George, kind of exploring the whole yeah, Chewbacca well, lore. Okay. Right. Who, else, who else would do that? Who else would make that? But you have to remember back then, Star Wars was a movie. It was a blockbuster like Jaws. It was the first, of, the second of the blockbusters that opened in right. 3,000 theaters the same day. And every suddenly was a part of the culture. But the whole reason he was doing this show was he wanted to keep the interest alive until the the empire wasn't going to come out for another year. So he he was that was his strategy. So this was this was all George. That makes sense. I, I get it. Let me see. I I might have another question for you. I asked some of my Star Wars friends, so they a lot of them uh, were interested in the Boba Fett thing. The the interesting thing about the Boba Fett, I know you said you didn't write it, but like the I don't know if you've seen the Mandalorian. Yeah. The weapon that the Boba Fett uses in the cartoon, in the special, uh, is the same weapon the Mandalorian uh, uses in the live action you know, show. So it's, it's interesting how it, you know, they, they kind of George, did. you know, in his, in his universe, that would make sense. Yeah. I, I, Mandalorian is fun. I personally think that uh, 
Baby Yoda is what will survive from the Mandalorian. Baby Yoda is the greatest. Long after everything else is gone, Baby Yoda will still be a thing, you know, because it's Yoda and because it's adorable. (laughs) Was there any, like, weirdness about trying to create a holiday? I mean, I know later with Seinfeld did it, but, like, Festivus and stuff. Yeah, we did Festivus for the rest of but like, was there uh, like? You know, any- I thought it was bold and ambitious. I mean, but uh, and who knew? I mean, I think that may have been a test to see how deep into the culture the Star Wars had gone. Because uh, now you might be able to do that. I mean, well, now don't they have May Fourth? Right, 4th, May the Fourth. Yeah, May Fourth is a holiday. Right. It, yeah. So I mean, there's a whole hashtag. But and it, was, everything. it was too soon. It was just too soon. Too and soon. it was also uh, Life Day was not about. Uh, Star Wars. May the Fourth is is about Star Wars. Life Day was was you know a hippie idea of let's just celebrate life in trees and I mean Earth Day is what is is kind of closer to what Life Day was. That's awesome. You've done so much, so much, baby. What's next? What are you doing now? What's what's what are you uh, focus on now? You know, well, I'm like everybody else. I'm writing. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm reading, writing, zooming, streaming, and falling in love all over again with porn stars long dead. <laughs> but I'm writing. I mean, I've I've written. I wrote a musical while we were sitting. Not while we were sitting here, but while I've been in my house since March 12th. I wrote a musical with collaborators all on Zoom and whatnot. And uh, we're waiting to see if the theater ever comes back <laughs> in, in this century. Uh, where we can it can be staged. We have a deal with the theater, but we'll see if when they're when they're going to reopen. And, and I've been writing. I'm writing, working on that book, and just uh, you know, writing. I mean, and doing a million Zoom and podcasts and stuff like that. And what? Well, and thank you for being on mine. I can't even thank well, you enough. It was such you know, an honor. They're fun to do, and it's you know, it's fun because it brings up things which I I can maybe use again. So it's not it's not entirely altruistic. It's like oh. He reminded me, you reminded me of something that I will, that they can use in the book or something like that. Well, so I'm there glad you I go. can help. I'm glad you know, I can help. That's no business. <laughs> Everybody has their own. We all are in our, we all operate in our own self-interest. What, if I can for a moment be amused to Bruce Valanche, I'll, ah. I'll, that's quite a bucket list item. <laughs> they said in the beginning. <laughs> to remind you of something else. The, they uh, said at the beginning, wearing a mask will keep you healthy. And prevent you from getting it. Everybody would have worn a mask, but they didn't say that because. Yep, was, and, and nobody really gives a shit about anybody else. So you know, if you're not wearing a mask, hell with you. But the, uh, if you had said you're saving yourself if you wear a mask, everybody would have been wearing. I think it's so, about to take that. We're turn all about right our now. stuff. People are about. <laughs> people are starting to realize they need to ourselves. buckle down. There are a couple yep. of nuns who maybe aren't, but otherwise we are all. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, next time you're online. People on the front lines, you know, there are them. Next time you're in Detroit, uh, give me a call. I will uh, escort you around the city, uh, show you. It's got a lot of great stuff going on now. Um, Hey, where can people connect with you? Rooster Tail. Rooster (laughs) Tail. London Chop House. I'm trying to think of all the Detroit places. Yes, amazing. Some amazing places. uh, Where can people uh, stay in touch with you uh, online? Well, they can go to wegotbruce.com which is, uh, you know, there was a movie made about me called Get Bruce 20 years ago with all these people, produced by Harvey Weinstein, who never laid a hand on me. <laughs> Hashtag, why not me? <laughs> uh, so we got Bruce.com, and there's, they have all the, the poop about what, what's happening. Very cool. 
Well, thank you so much. I can't, I can't thank you enough. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for stopping by. Well, that was fun. Had a great time talking to Bruce Valanche. Hope you enjoyed that. Shout out again to Mr. Jafari for hooking me up with some of those sweet holiday special questions. Also to my buddy Steve Joyner, publicist to the stars. If you need a publicist, 1-816-605-4561. Call Steve Joyner. All right. That was cool. All right. Let's dive into a hashtag. All right. I thought a fun one to kind of tie into all the awesome award shows that Bruce has done throughout the years would be hashtag awards for millennials. This was done by uh, our friend Acidic Blonde. And uh, here we go. Here's some. uh, Richie says, farthest distance walked without looking up from phone. Hashtag awards for millennials. That is Actually, that probably covers a lot of us. We all need to look up. Look up, people. Here's another one. Uh, best imaginary job title. All right. Influencer. <laughs> oh, man. The Avocado Toast of Achievement Award. That's a good one. I think a lot of people would want that. Avocado toast is delish. I don't know why. That's one of the best things ever. The best o- use of OK Boomer GIF. Um, <laughs> I love that. that. The OK Boomer. Uh being able to even, these are awards for millennials, folks. All right, here's one from Acidic Blonde. Doesn't matter. Everyone gets an award. Participation awards are so important these days, folks. Best Selective Hearing Award and most likely to break a bone while trying to take a selfie. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. All right. All these tweets will be at Jeff Dwoskin Show on Twitter. They'll also be listed in the show notes. Check them out. Retweet them. Follow them. Lots of funny stuff. Again, you can like and subscribe to The Jeff Dwoskin Show on iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Good Pods. Great app for podcasts. Check that out. And we're everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Like, subscribe, tell your friends. And even more importantly, we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.